Welcome to Continued, part of the teaching ministry here at Third Baptist Church. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and our aim in this time is to dig deeper from the sermon on Sunday morning, digging deeper into the text, uh, into exegetical issues, historical issues, contextual issues, whatever issues come up that we feel ought to be chased down a little bit further. My name is Adam. I'm also one of the pastors, and Keith and I are going to be having this conversation. So, welcome to Continued. You have this totally unexpected scene develop because Jesus walks up and and he says, "John, I want you to baptize me." Yeah. And and so John is reluctant. He's like, "How can I be baptizing you? I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. Yeah. I can't baptize you." Yeah. What is the purpose of Jesus being baptized? Why would the unblemished lamb of God, why would Jesus who committed no sin be going in for a baptism of repentance, which is what John was doing? Well, welcome to Continued as Keith and I discuss the sermon from Sunday. Uh, Keith, was you were speaking on Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 today, and, uh, and you had some excellent points. The title was, The Expected Yet Unexpected Kingdom. Um, your, your first point was all about the Holy Spirit being poured out in this kingdom. Um, we talked a little bit about baptism. We talked about some Old Testament ideas, some New Testament ideas. And then also you you brought up that in this kingdom, there is a mission for us to be accomplished. And those were kind of your main points for the sermon. Let's dive in today and let's see what other areas we can shed some light on. What about what about this baptism? You, you talked a lot about the baptism of the Spirit, but you also talked about John's baptism and baptism by water. So, so what are some of the differences that we see in John's baptism versus what Jesus was saying was coming? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, uh, Jesus is talking about what's coming, right? He says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So he's juxtaposing, uh, you know, the, the kind of baptism that John was doing to the kind of baptism that God is about to do on those who are in Christ. It's, it's interesting to, to when you think about the, the, the topic of baptism as a whole. You know, what is it? Is it something that Christians uh, invented, you know, 2,000 years ago? Okay, um, you know, how, how do we, how do we, how do we uh, signify that we're pure now, uh, that our sins are washed away? Is that what happened? And that's, that's actually not the case. It, baptism was going on well before Jesus came on the scene. So what John is doing, you know, John is not baptizing in, in the name of Jesus, obviously. He, he has no concept of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which we'll get there. Um, the new Christian symbolism of baptism is a direct correlation to the death, burial, and resurrection, right? Exactly. But John yeah. wasn't foreshadowing that. He wasn't. He, did, he no, didn't he know. Wasn't. So in, in, in the Old Testament times, there, there was baptism, and it, was, and it was immersion under the water. We'll talk about the word baptisma in Greek actually means immersed um, under, under the waters. But what they would do is they would baptize proselytes, those who were, in, those who were Gentiles, who were not, in, not a part of, part of God's covenant people. And so if, if, if a Gentile wanted to be a part of God's covenant people, they had to go through this, this laundry list of, of rituals, right? Proselytizing. Um, and, and one of those 
um, one of those steps was to be baptized. It signifies a purifying, brought into God's people. Here's the interesting thing about, about John's ministry. He's baptizing Jewish people. Exactly. He's not baptizing outsiders, but yeah. he's speaking to the insiders. He's right. speaking to the right. Jews and, and the Pharisees, as well as the common people. Yeah. And he's out there at the Jordan River yeah. baptizing. And, and that's why his message, it, it's radical for a lot of reasons, but, but one of the most offensive things about his ministry is he's baptizing Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Pharisees are coming up, and, and you have to imagine they're asking the question, we don't need baptism. Why are you, what do you do? What's this baptism of repentance? We're already in God's covenant kingdom. We, we don't need this. Um, yeah, but, he, but he was always butting heads with the Pharisees. Always. He was not a fan. You brood of vipers, he says. <laughs> That's not exactly, hey, come on over, pal. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but what he was doing was he was preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And he's looking at first century Israel. He's looking at the Pharisees. He's looking at the Sadducees. He's looking at the common people. And he's, and he, and he's carrying this ministry, this, this word from God that, has, that is coming in and through him that we need to be ready. We need to repent. Uh, we, need to, we need to be purified. Not, not just to do it, but to be ready for the Messiah who's coming. Oh, and by the way, you know, halfway through his ministry, oh, and by the way, there he is. <laughs> exactly. Behold the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist is really... The last of the Old Testament style of prophets, isn't he? Yes. And and he is living out his calling because he was separated from birth even to prepare the way for the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he's actually fulfilling prophecy. Right? Exactly. Um, yeah, he's part of it. He is. He he is he is the one um, of whom what it was prophesied that there would one who would come um, that would that would carry on the ministry of Elijah. Um, and this is man. This, there's a lot of rich Old Testament symbolism and prophecy together that John, that someone, that it, you know, they interpreted it as Elijah would come before the Messiah. But it, but it's actually you know one with a ministry like Elijah's yeah. would come. And in Isaiah, it talks about he would he would he would make straight the Lord's paths. He would tear down mountains and he would and he would fill up valleys so that there's 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 a flat and equal plain for all to behold. God's Messiah. And and you think about the cultural context um, that, that God hadn't spoken through a prophet for hundreds of years. So there's been silence, yeah. and there's been a lot of change. There's been the rise of the Roman Empire. There's There's been a lot of significant changes that are happening in the nation, and then all of a sudden, here's someone that they are recognizing. He's speaking the words of God. He's yeah. speaking for God. He's God's mouthpiece. Yeah. And so something new is happening. Something is coming. Yeah. And and what's interesting is the last prophet is Malachi. And listen to the last words of, of the Old Covenant, the last words before the New Testament. Malachi 4, starting in verse 5, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. There it is. Why, why would they, th- why would they, what, what's this correlation between John the Baptist and Elijah? It's in Malachi. I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So there, there's, you know, this, this heavy language of judgment. Um, you know, someone who's going to be carrying the ministry of Elijah, which is why there's emphasis, by just sort of a side note, but it's important of John the Baptist's clothing, you know, uh, camel's hair, leather, leather belt. He ate locust and wild 
wild honey, just like Elijah was doing. In 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah is being confronted by the prophet Elijah, but he gets word from this prophet. He does, doesn't see him, and he asks, what kind of man is this? And they replied, a hairy man. This is CSB, <laughs> CSB says. It can also be translated as a man wearing a le- you know, um, camel's hair, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. Um, and, and you'll see in the New Testament, John is described in the same way. This is the one who was prophesied who would come before the Messiah, and he's baptizing. You know, he's John the Baptist. He's immersing people. He's he's taking this system of proselytization, and he's bringing it into the covenant community and saying, "Wait a minute, you you all." think you're good with God? No, you need to repent and get ready for the Messiah. Exactly. And then and then you have this totally unexpected scene develop because Jesus walks up and and he says, "John, I want you to baptize me." Yeah. And and so John is reluctant. He's like, "How can I be baptizing you? I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. Yeah. I can't baptize you." Yeah. And so what what is the purpose of Jesus being baptized? Why would the unblemished Lamb of God, why would Jesus, who committed no sin, be going in for a baptism of repentance, which is what John was doing? That's, uh, man, you're, you're backing me into a corner on that one, Adam. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, that's a great question and a question that you know, theologians have, have talked about a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, why was Jesus baptized? Why did he offer himself for baptism? You, know, you have to imagine, like you said, what, a, what, a, what, a, what an amazing scene. You know, yeah, of him walking yeah. up oh, and offering himself to, for baptism. Yeah. To watch that unfold. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you, and you you can sort of you know resonate with John. Uh, me, baptize you. We talked about that baptism is for purification, right? The um, the washing away of sins, symbolizing the washing away of sins. So why would the Son of God, pure, undefiled, unblemished, be baptized? That really upsets a lot of our theology. If you take that, you know, if you just take that at face yeah. value, that's, yeah. that's, that's sort of offensive to me that Jesus would be baptized because baptism is for the, the, forget, the, the, the washing away of sins. Here's, here's what I would say. Jesus, it's all about identification. Jesus is identifying with his people as he does that. He says, he says we, we, we must do this. this. This will fulfill what God has planned. So he does this as a symbol uh, of identification, of unification. It's almost like his embodiment of God's people's sins, of the curse upon God's people because of their sin, because of their wickedness, he's taking in. So it's this identification with sinners. That's, that's what it is. It's not, the, it's not the forgiveness of sins. It's not the washing away of his own sins. It is the, I'm going to do this um, to fulfill all righteousness, he says, so, so that I can identify with people of sin. Exactly. He says in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus answered, says, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah. He's stepping into that role. He's, he's making clear his identity and, and yet at the same time identifying with people. That's right. And in the same way, this is almost a precursor to the cross when Jesus completely identifies with you and with me. And with, with all of God's people in all of time, who are what? Who are sinners. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus didn't just have sin on his side. He, the scripture says, became sin. So it's, it's really the same concept of identification. 
So he's being baptized for identification with sinners. And on the cross, he became us, <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know, spiritually. Yeah. In the Father's eyes, he became us. You have this identity that Jesus is taking hold of and affirming so clear in the baptism. Um, in, in the last verse of Matthew chapter 3, it says, A voice comes from heaven. So the Father is speaking and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God, the Father, is, is identifying Jesus this is my son. And, and I think that's really interesting that the very next chapter when Jesus goes into the temptations in the wilderness, uh, every temptation that he's pressed with, the devil says, you know, if you are the son of God, then make these stones come into bread. Or if you are the son of God, then jump off this mountain. Or, you know, he's questioning that identity. Are you really the son of God? And, and Jesus responds with scripture um, and we have heard from God's own voice, this is the Son. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really powerful moment, the baptism of Jesus. It is. It is. Baptism is an a integral part of Christian life and experience, even today, 2,000 years after this moment. And, and yet we are still baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity in Matthew chapter 3 in Jesus' baptism. As the dove comes down, the Father speaks, the Son is in the water, um, and, and yet we are baptized today. Um, what is the symbolic element? You already mentioned this earlier, how, how the baptisms today are not baptisms of repentance like John did, but they are rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. Let's look at the word baptism uh, in the yes. Greek. Um, it is baptisma, so it's it's really it, it's not even a translation. It's really a transliteration. Exactly, just the taking word. the word out of one language yeah. and really keeping it the same, but having it in yeah. a new language. But here's here's the interesting thing: if we were to translate that word, what would it be? It would be immersed. Go go into all the world and and make disciples, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that would yeah. be a very faithful gloss, a very faithful translation, yeah. immersing. Um, so that's, that's what John was doing, and, um, and, and there's, there's great evidence that that's what the, what the very early church, that, that's what they were doing. And immersing means taking a person underneath the waters completely and bringing them back up. Now, the baptism of John has symbolic significance for the washing away of sin. So does Christian baptism, but but the but the symbolism and the and the correlation to Christ just exponentially exploded, really, with with the the correlation, the identification with Christ. Let me read in Romans chapter six. Uh, I'll just start in verse one. Paul's sort of developing an argument of identification of us being in Christ, and and um, when He died for us, so did we die. When He raised, so were we raised. What should we say then, he says in 6.1, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, he's not speaking directly of water baptism there. He's just talking about identification. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in, a in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What he's saying there, and we, what we correlate to baptism is, baptism is a one-to-one -one of what Jesus did for us and what we have in him. Here's what Paul's saying. When, when when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. 
When he was buried, you were buried with him. When he was raised from the tomb, you were raised with him. You walked out of the tomb in him. And so baptism, you couldn't have a more perfect correlation, a symbol there, because the water is the grave. That's, that's, that's the correlation. The water is the grave. And so when a person goes into the waters, he's going into the grave. He's dying with Christ, and, symbolically. And affirming that Jesus was truly dead. That, yeah. that it wasn't just that Jesus was wounded or, or just really bad, you know, really hurt or anything like that. But he was fully dead, fully in the grave. He was. The grave was totally yeah. sealed. And when we come up from those waters, a lot of times pastors will will recite this, that, you know, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. When you come out of, when you came out of those waters, when you were baptized, when you see uh, the next person who uh, who follows through in baptism uh, in the church, when they are coming out of those waters, it is, it is a direct representation of what has already happened to them. Yes. They were raised with Christ in the grave. And so, you know, we we, it's 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 all about what's happened to us past tense, but it's also about what's going to happen. Uh, it, it is a it is a um, it is it is an act of identification with Christ and Him identifying with us. Yeah, I tell people when I'm baptizing them that that this is an outward symbol of what has happened yeah. inwardly yeah. in us, and it doesn't and save, it, right? It's yeah, just, this is not a a salvific moment, but it is a, a moment of unifying with the body. Uh, exp- Expressing our unity with Christ, yeah. um, it is a act of obedience, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, a a marker in the ground that you can you can look back on and you can remember those that moment that day. Yeah. Um, whereas it might be harder to pinpoint that moment of salvation. Uh, that may be uh, a very private moment, something that wasn't shared with a lot of people. But yet, this baptism is a very public thing. Yeah. At least it's designed to be. Yeah. And you share it with the community. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that out, Adam, because that's that. It seems to be that that's sort of a misunderstanding. You know, in the past hundred or so years in our tradition, our Baptist tradition, there's been this heavy emphasis on the decision, mm-hmm. on the walking of the aisle. Um, when what was the day? What was the hour? Um, that is your public declaration when you walk that aisle, right? Yeah. yeah. The Bible knows nothing of walking the aisle. L- listen, and we're not we're not throwing that out. There were no, no. aisles to be walked. There were no aisles to be walked. First of all, and we're not throwing that out. Man, we would rejoice, you know, somebody making a public declara- declaration in the church building. We we call for that. We want yes. that to happen. But that's not the biblical public declaration. Mm-hmm. The biblical public decora- declaration is what you said. It's baptism. Baptism is the telling of the world, I belong to Christ. It's not, it's not the walking of an aisle. It's not the raising of a hand. Um, it's not a prayer that you, that you tell somebody about. It is the act of baptism. That is your public declaration. And two, Adam, this is why we believe in believer's baptism. You know, in, in your more reformed circles, they see baptism as a, uh, as a new covenant version of circumcision. So what they're, what they're going to do is, is, okay, in order to, and they're, they're not going to say it saves, but in order to bring a child into the fold of God as much as we can, we're going to sprinkle them because that's our, you know, sort of the new covenant version of circumcision. I think there's, there's great evidence that uh, baptism is, is not uh, biblically a, a continuation or, you know, the passing of a baton of, of, of membership into, into God's covenant community. Um, but what we do see is the rich symbolism of what has happened to a person, you know, because, well, first of all, uh, you know, we talked about immersion. 
So we do immersion. We follow the example of John the Baptist and Jesus and, and Acts. Uh, the word baptisma is immerse. Um, and also, it's always after a decision to exactly. follow Christ. Yeah. Um, you think of, and, and I, I'm glad you said the Acts, you just said the whole book, because it does seem to be the the common practice through the book of Acts that, that baptism is by immersion, and, and we don't see any other examples of baptism other than by immersion in the book of Acts. Yeah. Keith, are you aware of the the English translation of the word baptism as the Bible is being translated into English. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the Greek baptizo being a transliteration. And so there was an opportunity that the Bible translators were going to put the word baptized as the word immersion when they were writing it in, in English Okay, in the 1600s. But the king had not been baptized by immersion. And so they were scared if they translated it into immersed, then that king would have known that he has not been biblically baptized, and then their lives would have been threatened. So they opted to keep it in the Greek version, baptizo, (laughs) and and just make it an English word, baptized, rather than upset the monarchy. I I'm I'm sure we had a conversation about that in church history, but I I forgot about that. That is that's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so much politics and self-preservation mixed in. We need grace. <laughs> we sure do. That's that's we that's, sure that's incredible. That is incredible. And that's a little side note. So Keith, we're having this great discussion on baptism, and and baptism is just an essential element of our Christian life. Um, but in Acts one, Jesus doesn't talk about a water baptism. He says, disciples, you need to stay here in, just in Jerusalem for a couple days because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and this new age is going to be unfolding with, with a spirit-filled church. And so, so what is the connection for our discussion on baptism with, with a spirit-filled life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we, we talked a lot about water baptism, and, and we should have. It's very important, and it'll come up throughout the book of Acts, you know, water, water baptism as, as symbol and, um, and, and key, really key symbol in a matter of obedience for us if we're going to follow Christ and, and, sh- and tell the world that. Um, but in, in this text, the, the, primary, um, the primary issue is baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says in a few days, John baptized you with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that this was the expected part of the kingdom, right? I mean, the, the disciples are hearing this and they're saying, okay, yeah, the, these, these scriptures, we went to a few on Sunday morning, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, there's another one, Zechariah, that is really clear to eyes before Christ that, okay, when the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven, so will the kingdom come. And it will come in his fullness. Uh, uh, you know, the, the prophets are describing God restoring justice and peace and righteousness when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Jesus says this is going to happen in a few days. These are some really clear Old Testament texts, but describe the perspective of a prophet looking forward to uh, the redemption of Israel and the coming of the Messiah and how how we look back on the coming of Christ where they were looking forward. And so the the matter of perspective can get blurred in that process. That translation is difficult. Yeah, Adam, let me read for you from 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 1.10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated 
They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what, what we have here is a description of what the prophets were doing. You know, there, there's debate in uh, Old Testament scholarship. Let's take, for instance, Isaiah 53. Did he know he was talking about the Messiah's ministry in a manner that it actually happened and that he would be raised from the dead? You know, could he see that? Could he see, the, you know, the, the good news of the gospel explicitly? There's debate on that. I, I, I land on the side of, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think he's recording a vision. He's, re, he's, you know, however that happened, if he's seeing it, if he's feeling, he's writing this down. I, I think he knows it's from God, but he doesn't understand even quite what he's writing. That's, that's what I would say. Not but, in its fullness. Not in its fullness. No, exactly. he, you know, he's not, he's not, you know, it, it's not like he's in a trance and he doesn't understand. That's yeah, not what I'm saying. Yeah, this is not dictation where, no, where no, no, he's no. out of body and God is writing through him. No. no. There is personality. Yes. There is still uh, God is using men to write down His words, but but they are still fully engaged in yes. that process. And I think Isaiah knows he's writing about the ministry of the Messiah, but he just doesn't know clearly how it's all going to unfold. It's it's like the illustration I used on on Sunday morning. Um, you know, we have the great benefit of living in the great state of Tennessee. Um, East Tennessee is a beautiful part. Uh, I'm from East Tennessee. I'm a native son of East Tennessee. Um, the scenic city, uh, Chattanooga, beautiful city. If you've ever been there, beautiful, uh, <laughs> can I say. In East Tennessee, if you're, if you're on a mountain, right, uh, actually on Lookout Mountain, um, they, they claim that you can see seven states from uh, Rock City. I don't know if you've ever been there on Rock City. I have, yeah. I have. So claiming you can say, see seven states. Now, when you get into East Tennessee, if you get to a certain level of altitude, you can see the Smoky Mountains, right? You can mm-hmm. see them out there. And from your perspective, it looks as if they're on top of each other, right next to each other. Uh, that one is right behind that one. That one's right behind that one. That one's right next to that one. And from your perspective, it looks like they're side by side or they're right behind each other. But if you were to get in an airplane and fly over those mountains, you would realize, okay, these mountains are nowhere near each other, right? This one's 50 miles from that one behind it. This one's 50 miles east. But from that perspective, it looks like they are together. I think that serves as a good illustration of what the prophets were seeing. You know, when, I, when Isaiah, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 39, Zechariah 14, when they're seeing the age of the Messiah and they're seeing God pouring out his spirit, they're also seeing a restoration of God bringing his kingdom to earth. But they're seeing it as those mountains in the distance. But we... On this side, and Jesus is, is teaching the disciples this. The disciples are understanding this. Okay, we, the kingdom is here, but in the next passage, Jesus is about to go to heaven, and he's, and he's saying, this, it's not for you to know when the final restoration and the kingdom comes in its fullness. It's not for you to know that. What they're seeing and what we see is what the prophets saw is the, is the messianic age, it would be a, a way to, to describe it, this age we're in, the, the church, church age. Church age. Um, there is actually two comings of the Messiah. And interestingly, the prophets, they're either describing one or the other. You know, Isaiah's describing the, the, the suffering servant, but he also describes the Messiah coming in power and glory and restoration and righteousness and justice. But, it, but they didn't have, the, the scribes and Pharisees didn't have the benefit of knowing that those were two separate comings. They didn't understand it. They didn't distinguish between 
the different comings of yeah. Christ yeah. and the different elements in how he would come. They just saw the redemptive plan in the future. Yeah, you know, that's the whole point of Acts 1-8, um, is that the disciples are seeing as far as they can, you know, put their hands in front of their face. They're just seeing what's what's around them, what's near them. They're expecting the Messiah to come and to restore Israel immediately. But what they're missing is the eternal plan of God, and that is to to save peoples from all nations. And what has to happen in order for that to happen? Jesus had to die. His blood had to be shed, and he had to be raised from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, um, defeating the evil one. They 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 didn't have, and I don't want to I don't want to paint with broad strokes here, but for the most part, they didn't have that understanding of the kingdom. Their understanding of the kingdom was an earthly, an, an immediate earthly rule of the Messiah. The, the whole eternal, you know, the, the, the spiritual forces of darkness, um, sin being destroyed, they didn't have that concept of the first coming of the Christ was the defeating of sin and death, being risen victoriously. Now the second coming will be in glory and power and forever reigning. Exactly. But in your sermon, you, you mentioned how the disciples weren't off track for what they knew, for their upbringing, for their, their, uh, their Jewish culture that they were living in. Their question to ask about the restoring of the kingdom is linked to the coming of the Spirit. And you've talked about those uh, Old Testament passages which show clearly that, that when the kingdom comes, the Spirit is going to be poured out. And so when Jesus tells the disciples, go to Jerusalem, wait there for the Spirit to be poured out on you, for them to jump to the culmination is not, it's not like they were out of line. They were looking for this end times period to wrap it up. The eschaton. Exactly. Right. They were ready for the end of days right then. Um, and, and there is a lot in the New Testament about the end times, but Jesus says, that's not your mission right now. That's not what we need to be all about. So what role does end times debate have? Should we squelch it like Jesus does at that moment, say it's not for you to know and just stop the discussion right there? Or is there any benefit to studying deeper in in Revelations chapter 20, which talks about the second coming? That's a, that's a good question. And Adam, you and I are seminary guys. We have this reputation that we talk about these things too much and not worry about, you know, the, the, the important things, which is this, which is this passage, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, a lot of times this passage is thrown out and, and see what Jesus said about talking about the end times, but the real, but the mission, you know, I, I think that, I think it's important for us to, um, to be uh, prophetically competent. You know, I think it's, you know, those passages in Isaiah and, 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 and Jeremiah, you know, and, and, and Ezekiel and Daniel, man, a lot of uh, prophetic passages. I think it's important for us to, uh, to know those and, and, and the book of Revelation. You know, we're scared of Revelation, but and, we shouldn't be. And we claim to preach the full counsel the of full God. Counsel. We, we affirm that. Yeah. So, so those discussions do have a place. They do. So, so the answer to the question is they do have a place, right? They do have a place. But the, the issue is the manner at which we have God's revelation, the manner at, at which we all have, you know, different backgrounds, different teaching, uh, you know, we've grown up under different teaching, we're going to disagree. Um, but it's, so it's important to, to, to have some sort of stance, you know, it's not, it's not, it's certainly not, uh, 
you know, it's mandatory that, okay, you've got to have, where do you fall? Are you here, here, here? And that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Just understanding, you know, just a general understanding of what's going to be hap- what's going to happen, you know, in, at the end of days, you know, cause Jesus spent a lot of time, Matthew 24, right. you know, he talks, he talks about these things and he says, when, when you see these things, know that I'm near. Uh, and the book of Revelation, you know, talks about these things. So it's important, but it's but what we ought not do is sit around and um, you know all we do is is debate these things. We break fellowship. We call each other heretics. You know, um, I, I think it's important for us to understand that we can have these. We can fall on you know uh, in in several different camps and still be orthodox. The millennium. You you mentioned Revelation twenty. A lot of times, uh, Jesus' return is in the context of the millennium. Well, in Revelation twenty, um, John talks about. Jesus raising the dead and then reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years, he says. Now, th- there's four main views on the millennium. You know, one is dispensational premillennialism, which says that the rapture happens before the tribulation. Then Jesus comes back and he reigns for a literal thousand years. Uh, historic premillennialism um, doesn't hold to a rapture. It actually holds to a simultaneous second coming and rapture. So we meet the Lord in the air, but then land with him in Jerusalem and reign with him for a literal thousand years. Postmillennialism doesn't hold to a literal thousand years, um, doesn't hold to a rapture. Um, they hold that, you know, over time, the gospel will continue to have more and more and more influence until finally it'll engulf the world. And when it does that, then Jesus comes back and reigns forever. And then finally, amillennialism, which doesn't take the thousand years as, um, as literal. The thousand-year reign of Christ is symbolic for this age, the church age, when Jesus ra- was raised from the dead in glory, and now he's reigning at the right hand of the Father. That is the millennial, quote-unquote, reign, and it's happening now. Now, Adam, it's important for us, we could talk a long time about where we've been, where we are now, where we might be, you know, we, you know, kind of, it's, it's easy, you know, it's healthy in some ways to grow in these things, and we might change positions here and there. I think the biggest thing for us to understand is you can be biblical, you can hold to scripture tightly and fall in any of these camps. Some of these are, you know, more obsolete than others. Post-millennialism, not many are post-millennialists anymore because World War One and Two <laughs> happened. Exactly. Um, less utopian dreams. Less utopian, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's important to, I think it's important if we're going to be students of Scripture um, to, to know what these say. It's not so you can say, this is what I am, but just to understand. And, and as we said earlier, these discussions do have a place, but it's not at the forefront of our mission. It is not the, it is not the mission. Yeah. And so uh, we do need to love and respect God's Word and give those topics time as they come up and discuss internally. I loved how you said not breaking fellowship because Orthodox believers have fallen on all sides of these issues, but not losing sight of our true mission either. Your last point of your sermon was that there is a mission in this kingdom and uh, that that before Jesus comes back for the second time, we have work to be doing. How does Luke put it in Acts 1-8? And, and what have we done as our church trying to model this passage in a practical way, a realistic yeah. way. Acts 1-8 serves as Jesus saying, meanwhile, 
in between my two comings, you do this, right? You go, you, you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And it serves as sort of a thesis. Uh, this is what actually happens in the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem, and it goes all the way, Acts chapter 28, Paul's in Rome with the gospel. Uh, the gospel's already there, actually. It's been there. In, in, short, in, in 30 short years, it's there. For us, you know, we look at this and we don't just see it as, oh, okay, that's what happened in the book of Acts. No, this is what we do. What a blessing it is to be a part of a, a church body that is doing these things, that is involved, if you want to take these regions, in all of these regions, in Murfreesboro, Jerusalem, in ten Tennessee and the surrounding areas. I just heard of, you know, last week Steve's going to be meeting with uh, some folks in Memphis to see how we can partner with them. Uh, the country and then the world. We know, you know, a team from India just got back and, and more teams planning in, in going to Mexico. Let's keep doing that and let's get involved in those things.